You can take your Bibles out and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44. If you don't have a Bible, they should be in the seat in front of you. There should be a few in the seat in front of you and you can, you're welcome to take those home. They're a gift to you to have God's word. It was a blessing to have uh, Jeff Lee, Pastor Jeff Lee preached for us last week where he looked at John chapter 11 and Lazarus and Jesus raising him and giving us hope in the, in the resurrection, right, beyond this life. Um, and so we're back in Isaiah. We're back in um, chapter 44, uh, which really does uh, kind of echo a lot of the same truths that we read about in chapter 43, that we are chosen, that we are formed, that we are called by God, all these great gospel truths. This one's quite a bit different in the sense that it, it digs more into the folly of idolatry and the, the folly of worshiping idols in contrast to worshiping um, the living God. Uh, as Old Testament texts often are long, this one is quite long, so I'm going to read the entire chapter, but you can remain seated. This is God's holy word. In Isaiah chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And this one shall say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth, and they shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest and he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. 
and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie at my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus does the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, who makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is God's word. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, we we look to be be moved by your word this morning. So would you do that? Would you um, have your word really examine our own hearts? Show us where we have idols and conform us to Christ this morning as we look to him. For our salvation. Would you bless us in Jesus' name? Amen. Just as a quick aside, I, that little, that last part about Cyrus is going to be dealt with next week because there's going to be a longer section about Cyrus. So uh, George will, will deal with Cyrus and who he is next week. So I'll leave that out. We have a lot other, of other things to deal with uh, and look at this morning. Well, I've got three main ideas, three main points for you this morning. If you're taking notes, it's all about worship. What is worship? The first is a God worthy of our worship. A God worthy of our worship. Secondly, our worship disorder. Our worship disorder. And thirdly, how to worship rightly. How to worship rightly. So, first we're looking at is a God worthy of our worship. Before we jump in, why is God going to worship? Why is he talking about worship? What's the big idea here? Well, we are worshipers whether we realize it or not. You know, worship doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings at church. I think sometimes we, we make it a religious term too much, and we think about it only in the context of uh, religious services. Certainly worship happens at mosques, it happens at synagogues, it happens uh, at temples, um, 
But it also happens in this quote-unquote secular world as well. Um, Worship doesn't just happen in the context of a worship service. Everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. You know, the fall into sin, when, when Adam and Eve committed that sin, and the whole world fell with them, and every descendant after them, the fall didn't remove worship from the picture. It increased it and redirected it away from the true living God toward created things. That we all worship something. Do you know that roughly 200 million people a year go on a pilgrimage somewhere, some sort of pilgrimage to a holy site, a Hindu site, Buddhist, Islamic, Christian. 200 people, 200 million people. Um, we are, by nature, worshipers. We, we, we stand in awe of things. We, we give things praise. Have you ever been to a, 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 an NFL or, an in, or a, a college football game? Right? You've heard praise. You've heard worshiping. As your team does well, you praise them. And as they don't do well, you, you mourn the loss. Right? And we see it in our culture, this desire for... You know, we live in a very tense political time. Maybe we have for a long time. Um, but this desire for your, to have your guy win at all costs, isn't that the desire for a king, ultimately, that we want a king? And the desire for justice, this, this, this desire in our culture to see, to see justice done. And when we see injustice, we want that wrong righted. Isn't that the desire to see a king on the throne? Right, Everybody whether you're religious or not, desires to have this ruler on the throne in which we can bow down to and worship. We all worship. We all praise something. And so what God is doing in the first eight verses of this chapter is showing us a picture of a God worthy of our worship. A God worthy of our worship. And the first thing we see are these phrases that are repeated again and again throughout these, these last couple chapters. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Listen to verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. It's the idea that God made us to worship him. God formed us, made us, and chose us. We are specifically made and designed to be fulfilled by God, to be satisfied in God, and, and we cannot find that satisfaction in anybody else, in anything else. Augustine famously wrote in his Confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That We are restless. We will, we will never be at rest. We will never be satisfied until we find that satisfaction in God. We will never find it in other people. We will never find it in any type of experience. People try to find it in in drugs and alcohol, this sort of rest and satisfaction. You always need more. You always need more. You always need more to be satisfied. It's only in God who made us and chose us and formed us that truly satisfies our soul. So he's the God 
that, we, that made us to worship Him. Secondly, He changes us in worship. Look at the, the, the two names He uses in verse 2 for, for Israel. He says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is a, it's a unique word. You don't see it a whole lot in the Old Testament. Well, what it really translates to is, is upright. And it's kind of this tender word, like my, my little upright one. Like this kind, tender word a father would use for his son or daughter. And Jacob, I don't know if you knew that Jacob really means this literally heel grabber. But what that's getting at, you know, he came second out of the womb, grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. And, but really what that idea is, deceiver, right? That he was a deceiver. And we know he deceived his father We know to get the, to get the birthright, to get the blessing. And so what the contrast is there, that we go from deceiver, Jacob, to Jeshurun, upright. And he's calling us out of our sin. He's taking us, taking that sin, and he's turning us into an upright person. He changes us in worship. And what that reminds me of is the gospel that we do not clean ourselves up. We do not make ourselves righteous before we come into worship. But it's the opposite. That we come to worship to be cleaned up. We come to worship to be made upright, to be changed, to be transformed. Religion, most people view religion as, I've got to do X, Y, and Z to be accepted, to be saved, to be made righteous. Where the gospel says, you come bringing your sin, you come bringing your unrighteousness, your filth, to be cleaned up by God. That's the gospel. That's, that's the grace that we get from God. That we go from Jacob to Jeshurun, deceiver to upright. He does that change in us by his grace. We come to receive a gift. We don't come to work our way, to work that sin off. We can't pay it ourselves. We can't do that. Many people do not understand the gospel to, to be saying that. They don't understand Christianity to be saying that. They lump Christianity in with every other religion that says you have to perform to be adopted. You have to, be, you have to perform to be saved. The gospel says you have to admit your brokenness and fallenness that you can't be saved and just come with empty hands. And he makes you upright. He makes you righteous. So he changes us in worship. And we also see that he pours out grace upon us. Look at verse 3 and 4. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. It's a picture of being revitalized. It's a picture of being refreshed by God. I read the, woman, uh, the story of the woman at the well because what Jesus was, was telling her is you're seeking earthly water, your thirst, your physical thirst, but I'm here to give you spiritual nourishment that will never go away, that you will have this water in you, like a spring of life as you trust and believe in the Messiah and trust in Jesus. And it's a gift, and it's given to us by God. You know, just before this weekend, we had about, what, I don't know, 30 plus days without any rain. And 
you could tell the people who were watering their lawns and who didn't, right? You could tell, like, it was starting to become brown. Grass was getting crispy and dried. And, um, you know, I've tried to grow grass in my yard before, and I've never been successful. Never really had anybody to help me. I just kind of would scatter seed and fertilize on the ground and not really do much. But we had a guy come and aerate our soil and do all that stuff you're supposed to do. And he said, now you have to water the grass. You definitely need to water the grass for at least two weeks. I was like, okay. So he told me to do it, so I'll go and do it. And um, five, six days straight of doing that, immediately you see these like, awesome little green shoots of grass all in the backyard. It almost started to create a haze of grass back there, something I was never able to accomplish because I didn't understand the importance of watering your lawn to get grass to grow. Uh, so I learned a lesson there. Water gives life. I mean, we should know that, right? But Water gives life. Um, and what, do you, what, what God is telling us here is that when you come into worship, when you worship the, the true God, it's like being watered. It's like a dry, dirty, dusty ground being watered and being revitalized and being refreshed. And so have you experienced that before? Where you come into worship and you hear God's word and you feel uplifted and refreshed by God's word. That is what he does to us. That's what his word should do to us. And it's not just us. Look at the words he has for, for our descendants. And my blessing, he says, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This promise is not just for us. This is not just an individual promise. This is for the, the people of God. This is for your children. These promises are for the community. Right? This is a promise for your children. Right? For all of the church. Not just you individually, but for everybody. He blesses us corporately as a body. And he waters us and he gives us his grace. And it says, and they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. You will be refreshed. And look what that translates to in verse 5. This one shall say, I'm the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's, the name of himself. And name himself by the name of Israel. Worship, worshiping the true God leads to confession. And I'm not saying confession of sin. I'm saying confession of, of God himself. You're confessing his name. You're, you're professing to believe in him. I am the Lord. You're claiming him as your own, just as he has claimed us as his own. It reminds me of Mary when she was told that she was going to bear Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And she didn't understand all the details. She didn't understand how it was all going to happen. She knew she was a virgin, but she didn't understand. But she trusted. And what she said to Gabriel said, she said, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. I don't know how it's going to happen, but may it happen. May, may it be to me what you're saying to be true. She was claiming God's word upon herself. And that's exactly what we get to do in worship. We get to claim the promises God gives to us, that we are the Lord's, that we are his, and we get to embrace God as our own. And then lastly, in verse 6 to 8, in this first, first part, he says, I am the creator. There's no God like me. You, you are designed to worship me, and there's no one else that you ought to worship. There is no God like the true and living God. He says in verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. 
Besides me, there is no God. We've heard that before, right? I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. That's what Jesus says in Revelation about himself. There is no God. What we're talking about here is the, what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. That, that God is the creator of all things. He is not a creature to be worshipped. He is a creator to be worshipped. He is not like us. At the end of verse 8, is there a God besides me? There is no rock I know not any. What he's doing is distinguishing himself from all created things, that we are to worship him alone. He is a God worthy of our worship. Well, the second idea of this, of this chapter is that we have a worship disorder. There's a problem. That God is to be worshipped, but we don't worship him very well. That we have other things we worship, that we struggle with. And that making gods, making many gods, is what we do best. Since since the fall, we make many other gods. Alec Moitier is a commentator of Isaiah, and he says, the real offense that Isaiah is causing here to the so-called modern mind is that there is no other god besides the God of Israel. There is no other god. This passage is, is a penetrating analysis of the human need for the divine and an exposure of every man-made device to make life secure. That we have in and of ourselves a need for worship, as I said earlier, to worship the divine, but instead we make all the various idols and, and worshiping things that we try to make our life secure with. Now, I wanted to read Romans 1 because it's a good parallel. It's a good foundational text about idolatry and, and, and what humanity does in general. Romans 1, verse 21 through 25, Paul says this, For although they knew God, he's talking about all of humanity, for all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they, here's the key part, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Right? It's a parallel to exactly what we're talking about here in verses 9 through 20. And, and look back at verse 20, and that's exactly what he calls the idol. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? A lie. That's what an idol is. It's a lie. It's, it's, it's saying a creature can be the creator. It's saying a creature can be a god. And if you think about the, the history of Israel, if you ever try to go back in your mind and say, you know, were they ever good at not worshiping idols? Like, like did, they ever, did they ever do much good? Did they start off well? Well, actually, it didn't start off well at all. When they were called uh, and, and, and given the exodus and they were freed out of Egypt, um, just soon after that scene where they are freed after, after their bondage of hundreds of years in bondage, they're taken to Mount Sinai. 
to receive the law, right? To receive the covenant from God. Moses goes up on the mountain. You remember what happened? What did they do? Didn't, didn't take very long. They created an idol, the golden calf. They put all their gold together and they, they put it in the fire and they formed this, and out popped this golden calf, Aaron said. Um, bit of an understatement, I think. And so they, they engage in idol worship. And one of my professors in seminary said they committed adultery on their wedding night, basically. Committed adultery on their wedding night. This was the night that they were going to be in covenant with God. And they rejected him. So no, it didn't start off well for Israel in the beginning. And that was foreboding as to what was going to happen later. And here we are where the exile, right, leaving the promised land, um, what Isaiah is prophesying. So what is idolatry? What, what is this word I keep using, idolatry? Um, well, you can explain it in various ways. Um, I really like this definition I, I came across. And it's this idea, idolatry is the idea of trying to squeeze life or blessing out of created objects. Trying to squeeze life and blessing out of created objects. Something that it wasn't intended to give. Ultimate blessing and life. So here's some examples. If you're trying to squeeze life and blessing out of sex, sex is your God. It's your idol. If you try to squeeze life out of earning money and your salary and making more and more that is your idol, that is your God, that you're serving. If you're trying to squeeze life and blessing out of your spouse, your spouse is your God, and it will crush your spouse. Same thing with your children. If you make idols out of your children, if you try to squeeze life and blessing out of them, they are your God. If you try to do it with your accomplishments, if you try to do it with ease and comfort and vacations, that is your God. You don't have to have something on your mantle that you actually bow down to. But it could be anything that you put in your heart that you trust in for security and for blessing. It never works. And it never works, Ray Orland says, because life that is truly life in every respect comes from beyond anything created. That life that is truly life comes from beyond what is created. You can't get it from the created world. There's this great quote by uh, this atheist author who's, who died several years back. His name's David Foster Wallace. He's an atheist. like He never believed in, in Christianity, never believed in Jesus. But he had this moment of honesty that he wrote from a, from a self-described atheist. He had this moment in this writing that, that hits the nail on the head, exactly what we're talking about. He's an atheist, but he talks about his atheism in an interesting way. He says this, Because here's something else, quote, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. He's saying, as a self-described atheist, that no one can really live as a true atheist because we all worship something. We all bow down to something. And that's true. We all, we all serve something. We all serve something. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage and from verses 9 to 20. What God is trying to show us is the absurdity of, of worshiping idols. The absurdity. And we see in verse 11, as it begins, Behold, it's talking about the, the crafter of the idol. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. There's our first problem. The maker of the idol is only human. Right? It doesn't begin from God. It doesn't transcend anything in the created universe. It depends upon the... Um, we know humans are... are we, we fail, right? We're not perfect. Therefore, whatever idol we make is not going to be perfect. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 12. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. What he's trying to point to is that there is weakness and failure in whatever maker of this idol is, whoever he is. And we make that idol into the image of a man. Look at verse 13. He shapes it into the figure of a man and with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. We make gods who we want them to be, and very often our idols resemble us. There is this relationship between what the idol looks like and what we look like and what we want out of life and out of that idol. We love to worship ourselves. I'll get to that in a minute, but we love to worship ourselves. Every idol becomes a means to self-worship. And in verses 14 through 17, I won't read it all, but He's going to the fact of the absurdity of idols. That this idol maker is um, cutting down a tree. Um, he's, he's cutting it down and splitting the wood and, and burning some of it. And then he's taking some of that tree and he's crafting it into an idol. So he's using some of the wood to cook his dinner and to stay warm. And the other, other piece of that wood he's worshiping and bowing down to and saying, save me, save me. He's saying, well, you're supposed to sense the... the um, it's a little bit ludicrous. It's a little bit uh, crazy what this guy is doing. That's what God is trying to show us, is that this is no idol. This, this has no power to do anything for this man, for this worshiper. The, the idol worshiper worships that which has no power to do anything. And we read elsewhere, and especially in Psalm 115, that, that we actually become what we worship. And we get a hint of that in verses 18 through 20. He says, they know not, he's talking about idol worshipers, they know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. What he's hinting at is that the worshiper of idols becomes blind like the idol itself. The idol can't do anything, and then the worshiper of that idol has no ability to see or do anything. Psalm 115 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them 
become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like an idol, an idol that can't do anything. And that's the deception that happens in verses 18 through 20 is he becomes deceived. He becomes spiritually blind. He becomes blind like the idol itself. And friends, spiritual blindness and deadness is the real danger of idol worship. I was thinking about Jesus and and the Pharisees that he approached. Often his argument, often what he pushed against them most with was their spiritual blindness that they couldn't see, even though they said they could see. He was healing actually physically blind people so they could see spiritually. But the Pharisees could see physically, but they could not see uh, spiritually because they were trusting in idols. They were trusting in their own knowledge of the law. And Jesus was trying to show them that that's the real danger of idol worship is that you're deceived and you can't get out of it. And the goal of idol worship is self-worship, like I said. John Calvin famously said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We're perpetually making idols in our hearts, clinging to things that can't satisfy. And it's because we want control. We want to be our own God. This goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? That we don't trust God's word, and we want to be like God ourselves. And that's what idols tempt us to believe, that we can get blessing in life on our own terms. And it's false. So that's the problem we have. That's the problem we have, the worship problem. So how do we worship rightly? That's our last idea here. How do we worship rightly? Look at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Remember these things. That's how we start to worship rightly, is that we remember. We remember. Ray Orland says this, look at the magnitude of the gospel. What God has promised, uh, what God has promised goes so far beyond what we can ask or think. It will take nothing less than a renovated creation to celebrate it properly. Our part right now, your part and, and my part right now is to remember that God alone is the redeemer. It's to remember the gospel. That's what we're to do every single day. And we forget so easily. I, I tend to think that I'm always going to remember the gospel, that I'm never going to forget it, but we forget so easily. I sometimes tease Hannah, my wife, because um, she has this reminder thing on her watch and her phone. If she loses her phone, she can ping her phone in the house, and it makes like this ding, 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 really loud. And I hear it probably, I don't know, 50 times a day. Um, and sometimes I can see the phone, right? She could have just asked me. I could tell her where the phone is. But we forget, so we, I mean, I lose a lot of things too, my keys, wallet. Um, we forget things so easily, just anything. And friends, the gospel is no exception. We forget who we are in Christ every day. We don't wake up remembering. We have to be reminded. That's why we have to be in the Word every day. That's why we have to read our Bibles. That's why we have to remember the promises that he speaks to us in Christ. I need to be reminded every single day, what God has done for me, what God has done for me. Because by nature, I want to do it myself. I want to prove myself. I want to go the extra mile, pull myself up from my bootstraps. And look at this awesome blessing that he says at the bottom of uh, verse 21, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Remember these things, O Jacob, but you will not be forgotten by me. 
Doesn't that lift your heart? That God does not forget you. We forget him. He doesn't forget us. But you know what? Idols don't even think about you. They don't even consider you. They can't. But God remembers you. He hasn't forgotten you. He's with you. And chiefly, what are we to remember? Look at verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I have blotted out your transgressions. As, as mist and rain and clouds move out of here, just, just the same way your sins are being removed from me, God says. That is what we're to remember, is the gospel, that he forgives us and that he pardons us because of Christ. He has blotted our transgressions. And what's the response? Bottom of uh, verse 22, return to me. That's the second thing we're to do in worship. Return to him. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Ortland says, let go of your idols and launch out into God alone. The life you most deeply long for comes only from God and Jesus Christ, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to deserve it. You can't control it. He pours it out freely into the empty hands of faith. That's the deal. That's the way to revival. We must return. And look at the, look at the gospel embedded in that verse again. Return to me for I have already redeemed you. I've already bought you. I've already chosen you. So return. You can't earn it. It's already been earned for you. Return. Come back. And we must do that every day, too. That's called repentance, right? Turning from our idols and turning to God. Um, this is repentance. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We must do that every single day. And the last thing we're to do, beautiful, and Cindy's going to love this, sing. Sing, O heavens. For the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. We're to sing. Christians are to be singers of God's grace. If we want to mirror God's character, we sing. We want to be obedient to his word, so we sing. We want to glorify God, so we sing. We want to teach one another in truth, so we sing. We want to encourage one another in the spirit, so we sing. We want to humble our hearts before God, so we sing. And you know that we teach and admonish one another from Colossians as we sing to one another in the congregation. And by his power and for his glory, may, may he form us all into singing churches. Um, you know, when you look up here at, at, at this platform, you know, what's, what's the first thing you really recognize? What's the first thing you see? It's this brand new awesome pulpit we have, right? And why do we do that? This is intentional. It's intentional to have a, a strong uh, pulpit. You know, in the early Reformed churches, pulpits were massive. Pulpits would go way. You'd have to climb a, you know, a steps to go up to the pulpit. You know, the reason being is God's word, right? The preacher, the preaching of God's word is the most important thing that we could hear from God. We went from a table. We went from the mass to in Reformed churches, the pulpit, right? Hearing from God, hearing from his word. And singing becomes a big part of that. We, we don't have a stage. We don't have, a, we don't have a lights and uh, you know, dark lights and, and all the sorts of things you would see in a performance. This isn't a performance. 
you guys are not an audience. You're a congregation. We sing to one another. We, we teach and admonish. We, we responsively read. You're a part of this worship. Um, you know, one of the things I missed most uh, during our time, short time in lockdown last year, was, was hearing your voices singing every Sunday, singing to God. You know, Cindy and I were talking just in the office the other day how we really noticed the singing the other Sunday. Uh, and, and even this, this Sunday, I've heard your voices loud, and that, that lifts my heart to hear your voices. Um, and and that's, a, that's a testimony. That's a testimony of your own faith to sing loudly. So let's sing loudly. That's what we're ought to do. Um, so why praise, though? Why, why are we to praise? You know, C.S. Lewis used to struggle with the idea that God asking us to praise him, he thought it was self-serving, that God would tell us to be praising him all the time. Um, but then he realized that actually praise is, is an important part of worship because it it, it, it really completes the enjoyment of, of worship. When you can praise, when you can talk about it, when you can sing about it. C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise, and he's talking about praising anything, praise that we enjoy, what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. We get to share the beauty of God as we sing about it together every week. And so Sam Storms, talking about this quote, says, Lewis is telling us that God's pursuit of our praise of him is not weak self-seeking, but the epitome of self-giving love. It's our satisfaction in God. It's incomplete until expressed in praise of him for satisfying us with himself. And then God's effort to elicit my worship is both the most loving thing he could possibly do for me and the most glorifying thing he could possibly do for himself, to elicit our praise and worship to him. Uh, and this, this idea is actually captured so well in the song that we're going to sing next. The first stanza of Come Thou Fount is this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of, my, of thy redeeming love. Right? The, the author of this song is telling us to tune our heart to sing thy grace and that God calls us for loudest praise. That's what we were made to do, to worship him forever and ever. And that's what we're going to get to do as we proclaim and praise Jesus in heaven forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are just in awe of who you are. And often very sad in that we, we, um, we settle for so much less than we ought to in this world. Would you have us to um, prize you above all things? And so in doing that, be satisfied in you most of all. 
we should be the most joyful people in the world because we trust in you and we look to you and you satisfy us with every good and perfect gift. We thank you, Father, for being with us. Would you bless us as we go forth from here singing your praise? You lift up our hearts as we lift up our words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.